It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro with you in the front row once again. Behind the scenes, as always, JR Equipment, our creator, producer, and director. We're up to episode number 47. We go back to basketball for that. And one of the legends in the NBA, Cedric Cornbread Maxwell, joins us here today. He got his start in Kinston, North Carolina, went to UNC Charlotte, took the 49ers all the way to the Final Four back in the late 1970s before getting drafted by the Celtics, winning two championships with the Celtics, and now back with the Celtics as a broadcaster. We talk about his time playing, his time broadcasting, also has his own podcast as well, and he turns the tables on me. He interviews me and asks me some great questions. You don't want to miss that toward the end of our interview here today. A lot coming up, a lot to get to, a great guest here, episode 47, it's Cedric Cornbread Maxwell. Well, Cedric, first of all, thanks for spending a little time with us uh, right in the middle of uh, the basketball season, NBA season underway, and I know you, you're working on the broadcast for the Celtics, but uh, appreciate you joining us and, and certainly want to get into you and your life and and you know how you got to where you are now broadcasting the games, but obviously a, a player in the past. Uh, let's talk about the early days for you. Uh, you're a North Carolina guy. You're born in Kinston. What was that upbringing like for you? And, and, and when did basketball maybe emerge as your sport of choice at that time? Well, it didn't happen till late emerging as a sport. You know, I grew up a typical child. I was uh, uh, surrounded by loving adults and uh, was uh, one child for a while. And then my mom had got married and had another child, I have a brother and a sister. And we did something a little different. We ended up moving to Hawaii. Uh, my father was in the military, her husband. And uh, so we were in Hawaii for my first three years of school. And then finally moved back to North Carolina, back to Kinston. And uh, that's when basketball became, became my love. And it's real strange because my mom was a basketball player. She played in college at North Carolina Central. Uh, dropped out to have me in 1955. And so I guess it's always been in my blood. You know, even during those times when uh, uh, my father was in Vietnam, there were many times when uh, my 13-year-old self was outside with my 33-year-old mom and we were battling in the backyard playing basketball. So, uh, you know, it was, it, it, was, it, it was inherently in my blood. So not your typical mom, as you said, she played basketball in college. Who, who was winning those battles when she was a 33, you were 13 at the time? Well, you know, it was going back and forth. You know, she won a few games, but we were so competitive. Uh, you know, when her, when um, uh, uh, my dad was in Vietnam, she, she, was, she played cards all the time. So she taught me to play all these card games, uh, canasta and things that we play at night. And then, uh, you know, to be competitive, you know, she played a little basketball. So uh, it, it was just kind of fun. It wasn't typical. Dad wasn't a sports person. So it was just really nice to have somebody who kind of understood the game. What was that transition like for you as a kid going from Kinston to Hawaii? Cultures, I'm sure, very different. What was that like? Culturally, just completely different. Uh, here I was. Uh, a young black kid living in Hawaii and for a while living off the base. So I was surrounded by uh, kids that were uh, Japanese, Chinese. And so my, um, my being comfortable 
and being familiar with people. That just wasn't one thing that happened immediately. Then finally, we moved on to, on to the military base. And once we got there, it was a lot easier then because there were a lot of other kids who looked like me, who sounded like me. And so that made it a little bit more easy in transition. Uh, but then to leave Hawaii and come back to Kinston, and you gotta remember this is during the 60s. And so it was a lot of segregation. Uh, my first two years in, in high school, I went to an all, uh, all black school. No, my first year, my uh, freshman year. And then we finally integrated my junior, my sophomore year. And I got hurt, didn't go out for the team, twisted my ankle. So I didn't go out for the team my sophomore year. And then my junior year, went back out for the team my junior year and got cut from the team as a junior. 6'3", about 160 pounds and uh, ended up getting cut. And um, the next year, um, it was rumored that the coach wanted me to come back out for the team because he used to watch me in his PE, his PE class. He was a PE teacher. So he asked me to come back out for the team. And I told him no. And uh, I was like, he's like, why? I said, because you just cut me. So it's like, I wouldn't worry about that. And then it became kind of basketball history. Yeah, you always hear about, you know, Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school team. It, it, was that something that in the end motivated motivated you to to show him that you were better than maybe he thought you were? Yeah, it, it made it motivate everybody, uh, you know, because a lot of my friends had told me, oh, you're going to go out, you're going to get cut anyway. And when I got cut, it was, ha ha, I told you. And then it was, ha ha, I made it. And ha ha. I went to college, got a full scholarship, and then ha ha, I, be, I became, you know, a star in the NBA, and ha ha, I got my jersey retired. So a lot of ha ha moments for me at the end of the day to prove how good I was. And again, Kinston's kind of become a hotbed in, in the state for, for basketball. You know, guys like Jerry Stackhouse, uh, Brandon Ingram came out of there as well. Uh, what is it about that area, Kinston, when it comes to, to basketball and basketball players emerging from there? Well, I think it's just the way to get out. Uh, it was a small tobacco town. And so there weren't a lot of ways to get out of Kinston. And for me, I wanted to move as far away from Kinston as I could. And I did not, I did not love my hometown, but I just recognized that if I was going to get opportunities to do other things in life, I was going to have to be away from there. So Charlotte came a calling, and that was the biggest uh, place in the state and the best school that uh, offered me a scholarship. And uh, I decided to go there. Uh, Kinston's always been a, there's a, a place called Holloway Center that everybody played, uh, that every little kid played basketball and they played three on three. And so it gave me a chance fundamentally to be a lot stronger because everybody had to, had to handle the basketball. So there were some real good things in my upbringing, upbringing about basketball. Hey, you mentioned eventually you went to, to Charlotte, 1973 to 77. Were there other offers, other opportunities uh, beyond Charlotte at that time? Small ones, uh, some small ones. Uh, I actually wanted to go to East Carolina University, which was right in my backyard in Greenville. And uh, I loved that school. It was a bigger school than UNC Charlotte at the time. and But they only offered me a partial scholarship. And uh, I decided to go to UNC Charlotte. I came back my sophomore year, I think. Uh, I was teaching a basketball camp, and they asked me that I want to come leave Charlotte and come to Greenville, North Carolina. I'm like, hell to the no. I, that would not be, that would be no. So uh, I decided to leave there, and, you know, I stayed in Charlotte. Had a, 
great career. Uh, my junior year, uh, we went to, at that time, the NIT when it was big, Invitational Tournament at the end of the year. And that's when I realized that I could play with all the other players in the country. And I was probably better than most of the players in the country. Uh, I became the um, most valuable player of the NIT on a losing team. And uh, that's how well I played during that particular tournament. And then the next year, uh, we were, you know, kind of a named school. So we got an opportunity to go to uh, the big dance, uh, where eventually we became a Final Four team and um, came close to winning the whole thing. Yeah, people don't maybe often realize that. You know, we had Artis Gilmore on a, a while ago. He played at Jacksonville University. They went to the, the championship game. As you said, you went to the Final Four. This was in 1977. Uh, eventually lost to the, the eventual champion, Marquette. But what was it about that team and, and, and your role in that team? Because you grew to 68 at that time. You were the forward slash center in that time. What, what was it about that team that helped get them on a roll and get them to the Final Four? Well, I think we had a, a great combination of players. Uh, myself, Lou Massey, Chad Kinch, Melvin Watkins, Kevin King. We all we all kind of grew up together. And um, we and then we got Lee Rose. Lee Rose came from Transylvania University in Kentucky, and uh, he instilled a another level of competition. Our schedule got better. We played against better teams, and uh, when with Lee and myself and everybody else, uh, we just became a a dynamic basketball club. And um, you know we were. We were long, we were athletic, uh, we ran, we played really a kind of a speed game. So it was it, it was fun to be there uh, at UNC Charlotte at the time. What was the Final Four like in 1977? I'm sure a little bit different than it is these days, but what was it like for you and, and, and for the school of, again, UNC Charlotte, you know, not a big powerhouse at that time? Well, disappointing in the fact that we were actually in Atlanta. Uh, you know, to be in Charlotte, okay, you think about all that, places the final four has been in new mexico it's been in seattle it's been in new york it's been where was it where was the final four that year in atlanta right in our back door so literally we drove to atlanta from usc charlotte um and it was it, it was it was it was fun it was it was great to have the university there it was a great learning experience and it probably was one of the most disappointing experiences for me in the fact that we lost and if we had lost one, we, we lost by one point to Marquette. If we had won, uh, we had would have probably would have played uh, uh, Chapel Hill with Dean Smith. So it gave us an opportunity to be an in, in-school team that played against Chapel Hill. And they never played anybody in, in their state, in-state school. So, uh, and it would have forced them to play with us. And I think we'd have had a, a great game plan. Yeah, I'm sure the crowd would have been crazy, like you said, in your backyard, Atlanta, not far from Charlotte. What a career you had, though, is uh, you had your jersey retired in 1977 when you graduated. And and recently you were inducted into the, the very first class, uh, the Hall of Fame class there at Charlotte as well. Those honors, what do those honors mean to you at your alma mater? Well, they're huge in the fact that you think about it. Everybody's like, well, wait a minute, what do you mean you were just inducted? Well, this was the first year that yeah. they had a – Hall of Fame class at UNC Charlotte. So there was a couple golfers. Uh, there was a, um, I think it was a goalkeeper. Um, uh, I mean, a, a goalie. Um, uh, 
so it, and there was a, a young lady who uh, ran track. So it was a, a combination of people who I I didn't know I didn't even know, but it was a, it was a great opportunity to kind of get back with my friends and and learn that at the same time this year it was a big big summer. Same time this year, my fraternity Omega Psi Phi uh, recognized me, put me in their in their uh, athletic hall of fame. I went in with uh, Ozzie Newsom, uh, the great um, uh, wide receiver for the Cleveland Browns. So it was it was a it was a it was a fantastic summer uh, actually to be in Charlotte. Yeah, certainly a good class there. As you said, Ozzie Newsom, outstanding uh, NFL player, Hall of Famer as well. Uh, so. You know, again, the success you had at Charlotte, what was it like? Did you think that you had a chance to get drafted to play at the next level? Well, once we played in the NIT, and I played against all these guys who were supposedly the top players in the country, and I played well against them, I'm like, well, why wouldn't I be, you know, an opportunity, have that opportunity? Matter of fact, after my junior year, uh, people asked me, was I going to go hardship? And I loved college, loved college. Mm -hmm. So for me to be in, um, to be there and stay in, stay in school at USC Charlotte, I absolutely loved it. I had a, a fantastic time and and waited till next year. And uh, the next year we went to the Final Four, and and um, you know I, I knew that the pro teams were kind of looking. Uh, I remember one story in particular when uh, Red Arback came to scout our team uh, at uh, I think it's in Madison Square Garden. And I remember the, some of my guys said, man, Red Arback's here. And I looked over there in the middle of the game, and Red Arback was asleep. I was like, what the <laughs> is so? And I think he, Red always did that as a ploy. And then he'd leave. And so he saw what he wanted to see. And, and so if he saw what he wanted to see, he would just, you know, act like he wasn't interested and get ready for the draft. And, and then uh, the 12th pick in the draft, they ended up taking me. And then I, you know, come to Boston, and I'm playing with, all these legendary players, players I had read about, seen, you know, Jojo White, it was John Hamlicek's last year was my first year. Uh, Dave Cowens, Dave Bean, um, I mean, Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe, Charlie Scott. There were, I think there were four, four guys, four or five guys who turned out to be Hall of Fame players that I played with my first year. It didn't work out well for us. We, we, we lost. And Matter of fact, we had a Hall of Fame coach in, in Tom Heinsohn, who was our, our coach also. So it was uh, it was it was an interesting experience and it was a learning experience. Not a good one, but it was a learning experience. And I had to pick up some things and I picked up some things, one from John Havlicek, which I took with me, you know, for the rest of my career. And in particular, it kind of bounced back on me my rookie year. Uh, we weren't playing well, and I got inserted in the lineup and, uh, in front of John Havlicek. And I scored uh, 21 points in that game, and the first person that came to me after the game was John Havlicek. And I was just like, wow. And he said, man, Rook, keep it up. Then I remember later on in my career, I got hurt, and Kevin McHale uh, came in to start it. And the guy knew that was the end of me playing in Boston. And he he always tells the story how gracious I was to, to him because we were great friends anyway. He thought it was going to be some animosity. I said, no, there's no animosity. I said, I want you to play well. And he tells the story. And that's one of the proudest moments I have about playing basketball, not necessarily winning the championships, 
but the relationships that you build with your teammates. And that's going to be, in a sense, tough a little bit because, again, it's a business, right? So, uh, again, it's, it's you know, you're, you're taking somebody's spot. They're taking your spot as well. But that's a, an interesting lesson to learn. Is that something that you talk about often now during your broadcast and, and try to preach as well to some of the, the younger guys, I'm sure, that, that you're around? Well, all I try to tell them is opportunity is going to be there. One guy in particular I talk about right now is Grant Williams, who's on the team. Grant is from Charlotte. I know his father. Uh, and we talk a lot. And I tell Grant, and, you know, Grant has done something which I absolutely admire. Grant, uh, the Celtics offered to him a, you know, contract, probably probably five or $60 million a year, maybe $50 million, whatever it was uh, on this contract. And it's not, you know, a, a, small contract for, you know, a good player. Well, he decided not to take it and he's betting on himself. And I talked to him about that. I said, man, I am so proud the fact that you are deciding to bet on yourself, that you can make more money. And uh, I think about it, he's also uh, vice president of the Players Association. So I think he kind of knows that there's some more money coming down the pipe pipeline uh, with these uh, negotiations, which are gonna come up pretty soon. So. Uh, I'm just real, those are the kind of people that I really get a chance to talk to those younger players. You know, you were a young guy at one point and, and then the, the dynasty kind of started with the, you know, the drafting of Larry Bird. Did you see, did the team see kind of what was developing there player wise and, and, and what was happening and what maybe was to come for the Celtics? Well, I was actually the first person pro, I think, to see it. Uh, my, uh, we went to camp together. And so we had this big thing. And when Larry came in, I gave him the great, the great clap, the great white hope clap, like, okay, here we go. The great white hope. And we went to battling, battling back and forth. And, and I can honestly say I was a, a very, I was an ignorant, prejudiced player. I didn't think a lot of white guys could play, and especially this one. And remember after that practice, me going back and forth, and I'm scoring on him, he's scoring on me, and he scores some more on me, I score on him, and it was a battle. But I remember getting back to the getting back to the locker room and getting to the first black person I could get to. And I said, you know what? I fucking white guy can play. And and that was uh my uh introduction to uh Larry Bird as a basketball player. And it taught me at that time, it wasn't about the, wasn't about your color, but it was about your ability to play the game. And uh, Larry truly convinced me of that. And, uh, you know, we, we formed a dynamic partnership uh, for those years that, uh, you know, I was there eight years playing with Larry six years and, and being a starter for, you know, seven years of my career in Boston was, it was a lot of fun. And, Obviously, two championships, a finals MVP, a lot of good things happened for me. Yeah, let's talk about that first championship, 1981. As you said, it was you. It was Bird, McHale, Tony Archibald. You had ML Carr on that team, Robert Parrish as well. A pretty good team. You go up against the Rockets, who had Moses Malone at that time. Uh, what was that finals like for you, battling with Moses Malone? Well, it was, it was, it was really cool. And the fact that we played again, I, I was on the floor with all these fantastic players, um, you know, and, and to be uh, at championship level, uh, to be to beat Philadelphia in seven games to get to the finals was already a miracle for us because we were down 3-1 to Philly and going back to coming back home for the fifth game of Boston. 
And then we had to go back to Philly where we hadn't beat them in, I don't know, eight or nine tries. Uh, and then go back to Philly, beat them there, eventually come home and win. And then get in the finals against uh, a Houston Rocket team that surprised the Lakers. Now, we were hoping for the Lakers, but we, we got the Rockets. And uh, you know, the rest was kind of history. I played extremely well against Moses and whoever they put on me. I averaged about 19 and 10. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, won a world championship and became the most valuable player. And one of the things I talk about, I think I recently had a uh, back and forth with Draymond Green. And, uh, and one of the, the things I mentioned to him and anybody who would listen, I said, uh, you know, last year there were only 33 finalist MVPs ever in the history of the NBA. And damn it, I was one of them. So it was, uh, it, it was, it was quite an accomplishment to um, be on the floor with those guys and to be the most valuable player in a championship series. Yeah, as you said, all, all the names, not just uh, on the Celtics, but the Rockets as well. So you're the N MVP in the NIT and a losing team. It must have been nice to be the MVP on, on a winning team this, this oh, go around. Oh, completely different in the fact that, you know, celebrating uh, with your teammates, celebrating with great players uh, to win in the NBA. Like none of us, I think, had ever won a championship in that level. Uh, you know, Larry didn't do it in college. I didn't do it in college. No, none of my teammates, I think, ever did it in college. Uh, Robert Parrish, um, none of the teammates. So for us to win our first championship together against the Houston Rockets, man, that was uh, that was a special, special occasion. So, again, you win that championship. That's 81. You didn't win the next one till 84, but this team was still around. Did you feel like, okay, it's time again, that this was our time once again in 84? Well, we got a new coach. Uh, Bill Fitch, I think, had had run that that had run his ground and uh, won the championship with him. But Bill was a taskmaster. He didn't allow us to grow as men. Still, we're doing those little things to kind of control us. And I think a lot of guys, it wasn't me, uh, but a lot of guys resented that and uh, got Casey Jones. Casey Jones treated us a different way. And the, the, those guys responded. And uh, to be 1984 to play the Lakers, the people that, you know, we've hated more, that I've hated more than anybody, um, to for Larry Bird to win his, champion, his second championship against Magic, the first time beating Magic. That was, uh, I still right now ranks as probably one of the top moments in my life, basketball-wise, to have a seventh game where I had 28, and know, it was 24, 8 and 8 in a championship, in a winning game, in a championship in the Boston Garden, uh, you know, to say guys climb on my back and able to deliver, yeah, those are those that that stuff makes uh, that that stuff is in, makes you legendary. And eventually, to have the Celtics retire my jersey, uh, that was just again just special stuff. Well, you're talking about rivalries, so many great rivalries in sport. Where do you rank the, the Celtics and Lakers, especially of the 80s uh, in the NBA? Yeah, I was at the top. During the 80s, I was at the top. I mean, I, I could think about Michael Jordan. He's talk about him in Detroit, and, and you know, but, but the Lakers-Celtics, there's something magical about that. Even today, when these two teams played and, and the Celtics were able to beat them, uh, with Kobe Bryant, and then they came back and beat the Celtics. Uh, it, it just something about those two teams, those two franchises that have won more championships than anybody else. 
to get together and decide the NBA championship. That is special stuff. And for you, as you said, you led them in game seven, going up against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as well. What what kind of battles were they like with you and him? Yeah, screw Kareem. Yeah, screw Kareem. <laughs> it was more about James Worthy. My guy, big game James. At that time, I always say he was little game James at that time. And, uh, you know, play against him and to hear the stuff he was talking and to hear what some of the Lakers were saying about us. One of my best friends happened to be on the Lakers at the time, and, and that was Bob McAdoo, to play against him and to win a championship. That was that was just big time stuff, man. You know, you you can I can look at my first ring and go, man, yeah, we beat the Houston Rockets, but that second championship to beat the Lakers in seven games, that was really, really special. And Kareem is having to be one of the guys I've always idolized. And I remember telling them that one day I was had a um, had I think I had an interview with him. And I said, Kareem, I just want to let you know that I've always, you've always been my favorite player. In college, I wore the number 33. And that was because of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I would have got that number with the Boston Celtics. But what happened when I got here, Steve Gaberski, a player on the Celtics, had that number. So they gave me the number 30. And so I was happy with 30. Steve got cut. And they, and and by then they didn't want to. They were cheap then, so they weren't going to change <laughs> jersey over. So I took the number thirty, and then ML Carr came in, who was uh, a free agent. He asked me, could he got, could he have that number? And I said, sure. I just was happy to be on the team, man. And uh, so they he got that number, and um, I got number thirty one, and Larry Bird already had thirty three, and the rest was kind of history. In good history, the '80s in the NBA. What what was it like during that time? Because you know you see it now, but it was a different era in, in the '80s in the NBA for sure. Uh, nasty, dirty, physical. Uh, any adjective that you want to describe with physicality, that was the '80s, and you you had to be a real you had to be a real stud to play during the '80s. And I know that. Some guys think that well now you know you could it, it couldn't translate to guys playing right now with the Steph Curry's of the world and the ability to shoot the three. Well, it was just more drag out fights. Uh, I have a famous picture that I was in, uh, and I think there were like seven people, yeah, seven people under the basket at one time uh, looking for a rebound. It was myself, Kareem. Uh, Larry was in this picture. Magic was in this picture. Uh, Bob McAdoo, Kevin McHale. So you, you, that's how small the court was, that we were all clustered together. Uh, and that's how the game was played at the time. It was played in the paint. Now the game is played outside the paint. It's more about shooting threes. And part of it I like, part of it I dislike. You know, I think Steph Curry has done – as great as he is, he's done so much damage to the game because he's such an extraordinary three-point shooter that a lot of kids try to emulate what he does, and, and they just can't. Nobody's going to be able to shoot like that. And um, as I've said before, only two players that I've ever known have affected the game and changed. One would be um, Chamberlain, Will Chamberlain at the time because they had to make the lane bigger. They had to do all this stuff. And then Steph Curry. Uh, with the ability to shoot the three. Now the game has expanded into a game that sometimes I don't even recognize. Yeah, I would think as a kind of a big man of the 80s, you, you don't recognize some of that stuff at, at this time. And 
as you said, great run with the Celtics. You got injured. Kevin McHale started to emerge. And unfortunately for you, that led to, to a trade out of Boston, uh, traded to the Clippers uh, for Bill Walton, who had a, a nice career there with the Celtics as well. What was that like, you know, growing up in the NBA, if you will, as a Boston Celtic, winning a couple of championships and, and then eventually getting traded? And things happen. It's about business. At the end of the day, you know, the Celtics did the best thing for them, and and it was the best thing for me. I had made my run, uh, you know, being there for eight years and being the finals MVP to win them, to direct them to a second championship. And then things just kind of, you know, you you things change. And for me, things change when I got hurt. Uh, they wanted a change, and uh, things happened for them. And uh, at the end of the day, I was I, I wasn't I can't say I was thrilled to go to the Clippers, but I knew that my um, my chances here in Boston, my opportunity here in Boston had ended. So um, yeah, you make the best of it then. So I, I see those changes in life that you go through. And and that to me, that was uh, that was one of those changes. As you said, hard at that time was were you resentful of the Celtics at that time. Was it hard to kind of never, come re- back never to them? resentful, never resentful of the Boston Celtics. I think the thing the only thing I was resentful about was it was a lot of um, angst and animosity and stuff that was thrown towards me from some of my teammates and from the organization. And at the end of the day, I remember saying in the newspaper, look, our, our, our dance now is over. And all I wish, I wish the Celtics the best and all I wish that they would wish for me is the best. And, and I didn't feel that. And it was some, there was some animosity about that but not about leaving because my, uh, again, I just felt like my time, it was over. Again, you traded to the Clippers there for a while. Then you traded again to the Houston Rockets. Uh, what was it like toward the end for you? Uh, it was wonderful. I became the uh, jockey and not the horse. I remember telling, I remember telling that to Elijah one. I said, dude, I'm not here to score any more points. I'm here to help you. And I remember him looking at me, just kind of laughing and, and the, the funny thing about it, he was the greatest player I ever played with. And no offense to Larry Bird. Larry Bird was one of the um, – but I always think that Elijah Wan is the forgotten greatest player that nobody talks about because he controlled the floor more than anybody in the history of the game. Defensively, he was a stud. Offensively, he was a beast. Uh, you know, here's one of the few guys in, in the league who's ever had a quadruple double and he did it twice. Uh, so, uh, you know, kudos go out to um, uh, Dream and the Dream Shake. You know, he was he, he was an unbelievable basketball player. Uh, and his ability to move at that size was was unreal. Essentially about 6'9", playing against seven footers, but quick, fast, strong, uh, anticipation. You know, he, he was he was amazing. Were you kind of a mentor to him during your time together? You don't mentor. You don't mentor Dream. You know, he, he mimics you. There are things sometimes I remember I had a, I've had a little jump hook all my life. And he told me one day, he said, Maxie, I'm going to have that hook shot tomorrow. I was like, yeah, right. It took me, you know, how many years? He gets in the game. He shoots his little jump hook. He looks over at me and winks. And I go, you son of a bitch. That's how good he was, that he was a savant. He could take things that you 
you did and doing better than you were able to do. And that's what made him such a, a great player. Uh, you know, like I said, Larry Bird was unbelievable. I think, you know, one of the tops of all time. But when you think about a guy like Elijah Wan, Elijah Wan was a whole, a whole different animal when it came to playing the game. Well, 11 years overall, 10,000 plus points, 5,000 plus rebounds. When you look at your career, when you have a chance to step back, as I'm sure you do more now, what did that mean to you? You know, how, how good do you think you were during that time? And, and to be able to, to play for 11 years in the NBA is tremendous. Well, great. It was a, it was a great career, uh, great opportunities playing with uh, the guys. And I said, my, the, the best thing about playing the NBA was forging relationships. And the, I think one of the few relationships I did not have that I forged was probably with Larry Bird. Uh, and I think just because we were so different. But, man, still great partners right now with Kevin McHale. I could call up Danny Ainge, uh, Robert Parrish, uh, you know, Nate Archibald. You know, the, the relationships that you have in the league, that's what was more important than anything else to me. Uh, you can be a finals MVP. You can do this. You can win. But the relationships and the bonds that you really forge after you leave the game and, and during the time you're in the game, those are the things that really you think about later on. And again, reading about you, I know you you kind of had a colorful personality at that time as well when you were playing the in, in the NBA. Did that kind of help kind of keep people a little bit loose in the locker room? What was what was your role in the locker rooms you were in? I was I was that guy. I was Steve Harvey before Steve Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember it was so funny. I think one of the greatest compliments I had probably was with the great Bernie Mac, the comedian who died uh, years ago. And I was at a um, celebrity golf tournament that Muggsy Bowles, who played for Charlotte at the time, and Dale Curry were all at this tournament. It was Muggsy's uh, golf tournament down in Puerto Rico. So uh, Bernie Mac was, had finished performing. So the players, we were all going to go back and meet him. And he goes, he's, Muggsy walks up and says, I'm Muggsy Bowles. Is Muggsy nice meeting you? Dale Curry comes up and, you know, meets Bernie Mac. And, uh, Bernie, nice meeting you. Bernie, like, nice meeting you. I stick my hand out, and he goes, you know what? I'm about to say something. He said, I know you. You're motherfucking cornbread. I don't know who these other motherfuckers are. <laughs> and so that was one of the greatest compliments to me that I, you know, that I laugh about, and I look back on and go, man, that was crazy. Well, that, that leads me to my question about cornbread. Uh, it is, Cedric, Cornbread Maxwell, your, your nickname that you got while you were at Charlotte. Tell us about the origins uh, of that nickname because, obviously, it's widespread. Bernie Mac knows it. Yeah. Um, I think that it happened. Uh, there was a movie called Cornbread Earl and Me that was during the 70s, and Jamal Wilkes played a character in it. And he all he did was play basketball. And uh, his name was Cornbread. They had a song, Cornbread. And then it was, and at the time they said um, Larry Fishburne was in it. And I saw Larry Fishburne maybe about 10 years ago, walking down the street of Boston. And I went to introduce myself. And he's like, I was like, I was in that, he said, Cornbread. I said, he said, yeah, I was eight years old during that time when he played the, the role of Cornbread Earl. And he was me. And uh, so everybody said, I look like Jamal. And it was a basketball story. And we both had kind of light colored eyes. We were very slim bill. And a bunch of my friends saw the movie, said, you look like cornbread. You look like, I'm like, ooh, ooh. 
And later on, I saw the movie. I could see the resemblance. And that's how it started. Uh, some friends of mine, we were actually at the NIT in 1976. And they were teasing me because normally they call me the franchise. But they were teasing me that they called me Cornbread. And a reporter, New York reporter, hears, hears this. Southern boy with the name of Cornbread. And then it, it just lasted. Cornbread Maxwell. And people said, I, I love to eat Cornbread. I didn't. Don't even like cornbread, but it was just the <laughs> name which was tattooed to me, and it, it was okay. You know, people say I hated the name. I didn't like the name. I did not dislike the name. Uh, it was just an, uh, uh, a thing that was attached to me. But most people who know me now don't call me cornbread. They just call me Max. So it, it it was a name that I that was there at that time, grew with me, and then kind of departed with my second career as a broadcaster. I've been broadcasting now. This is my 26th year as a broadcaster for the Boston Celtics doing their radio and television broadcast. So I've had a fantastic second act. I've been in the, my second act has been a lot longer here in Boston than my first act. So, uh, you know, you, you had to love and love that as a, uh, a situation for a player or a person. Well, what attracted you to that side of it? Your, your second act, as you said, a broadcaster for the Celtics, WBZ FM in Boston is where you started. Uh, what attracts you to that? Just wanted to be back in the game. Uh, you know, wanted to be back around it. Celtics wanted to bring me back into the fold after those years. Uh, and they said, well, we have a radio gig. Uh, you know, Jerry Seasteins is leaving, and we'd like you to take that job. And... Um, I took it 26 years old, 26 years ago, and and have never really looked back since then. As you get ready, you kind of get that same feeling on a on a game day as as you did as a player. What were the differences? Not. Absolutely no. not. There's <laughs> there's sometimes maybe I should say that I shouldn't say that because sometimes I get a little angst, I get a little pit in my stomach when they play a big game, a championship game. I get a little pit in my stomach. Growing with Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen and Rondo, that was, I had a little pit and a little anxiety in my stomach playing against the Lakers. Uh, you know, this year I had a little pit and anxiety. But for the most part, I, I view the game a different way. Uh, you know, I, I look at it as a broadcaster. I try to tell my audience what I would do or what was happening in the game. And uh, so I've had a lot of fun, but but it's, it's completely different than the days that I would play when I played. Former players, you're either broadcast or, or, or you're a coach. Any did you ever entertain becoming a coach, going that route at all? No, I didn't. I always was afraid I might get a player like me who was a great player, <laughs> but just didn't take the game as serious. I, I always said I never took the game as serious because it, it was a basketball game. And, and there are times when I was mad in, in games, but at the end of the day, you have to realize it's, a, it's, a, it's an, an event. It's a sporting event. It's not going to... It's not you, you're not building the bridge. You're not curing cancer. You, it's a sporting event, and you keep it as such. And I've always tried to keep that in my mind. Like, okay, this is what I do for a living. I've had a lot of fun with it, but uh, but but you can't put it but but so high on the toilet bowl. Well, again, a lot of fun, a lot of success. As you said, your jersey retired back in 2003. So you go in the garden now as a working media member. You look up and you see your jersey there. What goes through your mind when when that happens? Quite amazed when you think about it. And I always look at it. Sometimes I go to the garden and we'll have a few people who work in the new garden now who won't know me. I was like, you do. See that number up there? That's me all day. 
<laughs> and I, I laugh, but I think about the guys that I'm with. And I remember saying this uh, when I first went to the Hall of Fame and I'm going, when I went to, when they retired my jersey, I just said, hmm. I said, look at those numbers and the names that are up there. And I'm among the greats. And there was no offense at all to, you know, Springfield, where the Basketball Hall of Fame is. But to me, the, the Hall of Fame is the Boston Garden, looking up at the rafters, looking at the guys who you, you know, you know, you were around, uh, guys who played there before you, you know, the late, the late great Bill Russell, uh, um, John Hamlichek, uh, you know, Jojo White, you know, those names, you're, you're among the immortals. And when you think about the, the names that you have in basketball, those are immortal names. And for you to be in that limelight with them, that is special. Well, you mentioned Russell there, who unfortunately lost here recently. Uh, I'm sure you've had a lot of interactions with him. What did he mean to you? What does he mean to, to maybe the game and beyond what he did on the court? Because it seemed like off the court is where he had such a, a great impact. Impact was unbelievable. When you think about him as a player and what he did off the court to be the first black coach to be in, in Celtic history, to win multiple championships, to win more championships than anybody in the history of the game, to have 11 rings, to win eight times in a row. But as great as those accomplishments were, he was even better as a person off the court with his stand for racism, uh, against racism, his stance for social justice, uh, who he was, an Olympic champion, uh, you know, this dude is, is he he goes down in, in, in like the Vikings would say, he goes down in Valhalla. Uh, you know, when you think about a, a basketball player or what he did in the NBA, to have the most valuable player uh, named Ward named after him now, the Bill Russell Award. This, that's just as how, that's how much influence he had on this league. But then you, there's a flip side of that that he was so funny he was so comical and you know i kind of knew him and didn't know him I, my thing that i knew about bill russell was every time he saw me he'd always give me the finger i was like <laughs> dude why, why the hell are you doing that and if he liked you that's what he did if he didn't know he shook your hand so i said i'd rather you not to like like me just shake my hand and he would give me the finger again but he was just a comical guy he loved the game i loved him as a, a who he, a standard bearer uh, I'm hoping that uh, the city of Boston does. There's a street in the middle of Boston called Boylston Street. I'm hoping they maybe name this thing Russell Way uh, because he was just that big in the city. Uh, you can arguably say he's done more for the city of Boston than any other athlete ever, ever. And there's some great athletes who came, who come through here. You know, the Bradys and, uh, you know, of the time. You think about what Tom Brady did but nothing the way Russell did or, you know, Kuzi or, you know, you have check or, you know, the Ted Williams tunnel. You know, Bill Russell was, Bill, Bill Russell was bigger than all those dudes. And he would flip you off in, in a, in a gesture of love. Absolutely. <laughs> it didn't make any, when his younger years to his older years, you know, every time I see him, the same thing would always come, those two fingers. And he's done it to, a countless number of people, you know, when you're on the air, he did it to Charles Barkley on the air. Uh, but that's who Bill was. He was, he was, he was, he had mischief uh, written in his heart. 
let's talk about the current Celtics here for a moment because last year, you know, they lose in the finals to the Warriors. But uh, expectations this year from 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 your seat courtside, what are your expectations for the Celtics team? We're high. And, you know, I think that they have to get healthy first. You know, no Rob Williams changes uh, the dynamics, uh, you know, defensively. Now look what they played Chicago the other day and got destroyed on the boards. Rob Williams helps them out there. So until Rob Williams comes back and they are completely healthy, then I think you'll get a chance to see the real bosses of the team. Obviously, look at Tatum. You look at two at Brown, two studs, two of the most dynamic scores the Celtics have ever had. Now, can they flip that over? Can they be the rebounders? Can they be the assist people? Can they defend? And I think that's going to be, that's going to tell the story. The, the tell of the tape is going to be, here in Boston, it's not about, you know, leading the league and scoring. It's about winning championships. Uh, until you do that on this big stage, then, you know, your numbers are great, but you, you have to win the championship to be one of those elite people. Some of the knowledge, some of the comments you make, I'm sure, again, on the broadcast. You also have your own podcast these days as well, the Cedric Maxwell Podcast. Uh, what do you like about that? Uh, it gives me a chance just to, to let off steam, talk about things that normally I wouldn't talk about. Uh, you know, I you know, like one of the things I'll, I'll turn, I'll flip the script here. I'll ask you a question that, you know, I normally ask a lot of my, you're, I'm building the Mount Rushmore in your backyard. Who are the four people in your back sports-wise that are going to belong in Mount Rushmore? Any sport or just basketball? Any sport. Any sport. You can do combination. Yeah. Just basketball. It could be football. Any Or just combination. Well, it's, I'm, your, I'm a, it's your Mount Rushmore. I got you. I got, I'm a Syracuse grad, so Jim Brown's got to be one of those guys. Okay. I, I think Bill Russell, you know, again, what he did on the court is extraordinary. And then behind this the scenes This is your Mount well. Rushmore. Don't worry yeah. about it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, that, right. I think those two guys – I mean, you got to put Jordan on there. You got to okay. put Jordan on there. Okay. Right. And, and, you know, I'm not a big Tom Brady fan, but probably Tom Brady as well. Although, like I said, that Boston, there's there's a wealth of talent there in Boston. Ted Williams could be on there. But it didn't have to know? be Boston. It could have been. You, right. Like you said you picked you pick one in Jim Brown. I, yeah. I picked, uh, mine was, um, I put Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Um, I picked, um Bill Russell, uh, I went with Tiger Woods, changing mm -hmm. golf to the masses. Sure. And then I picked probably one that was off the board. And it's really funny. Uh, um, Sakari Sellers, who is a, uh, a, a lawyer who's been on CNN a lot. Okay. Uh, I did a podcast with him. I asked him the same question. He turned around and asked that same question to Barack <laughs> Obama. And I saw this son of a gun about a month ago. I was like, you asked Barack and you didn't give me any credit. And then, but the last one I always picked, and he said Barack Obama picked the same one, was the greatest woman of all time, Serena Williams. There, there's a lot that to, to, to limit it to four in any sport. It, that's that's a great question. That's that might have to be something. I'll give you credit if I continue to ask <laughs> that question. You will, <laughs> you will ask that question, and I've turned around and modified it even more, asking yeah. another question, put you back in time. Give me one sports moment that you'd want to go back and you could be there in time. I'll give you two. You give me two sports moments you want to be back. If you could just say, poof, I'm back there. Where, where would you go? Oh, man. 
Maybe the maybe one of the early Super Bowls. Okay. You know, it's, I happen to, I happen to be living at that time, so I'm good. I, I know that we, you, you're you're probably not that old, so you were. I'm getting there. I'm I'm Bowl. getting there. But we, you, we well, no, that. either either you were oh, either you were around or you weren't. You weren't around for the super, first Super Bowl. I'll say 19, I was born in 72. So let's go with the 72 uh, Dolphins going undefeated. That would have been okay. in the, okay. I would have been a couple of months old in 73 when they they won the Super Bowl. Okay. Um that's a good question. You know, I'm a, I'm a, no, that's not a good question. That's a great question. Yeah. Boy, you, you man, now I see why your podcast is successful because that's you do have what, you have questions that make people think and and that's what you do. You turn it around. You're supposed to be the host, but I'm asking you a question. <laughs> You're going, wait a minute, I'm a ho- I'm supposed to be asking you a question. Exactly, exactly. So I, I'm not gonna let you off the hook, but you're gonna give me your second one. Second one, I, I'm a Dodgers fan, so I would say winning, uh, you know, being there for one of their, their World Series championships, I'll say 88, Oral Hershiser and those guys, you know, I was alive then, I was watching on TV, but to, to be there would be a, a lot of fun for sure. I think my moments I look at, I say two, I would have loved to have been in Madison Square Garden when Muhammad Ali yeah. fought Joe Frazier the first time. The spectacle of that just was just been unbelievable. And then I would probably say the, the greatest sports moment that one day I'm gonna get a chance to talk to him is gonna be the former president. The one of the greatest sports moments I've ever seen was when President Bush, the second one, walked yes. out in Yankee Stadium after 9-11 and threw a seed right down the middle. <laughs> I was like, damn. I mean, the, the, the place was USA. It was, those were the two, that those moments, especially that one. And I, I get goosebumps on my arm thinking about how it was. And he was like, and he had said he was talking to Jeter, said, don't short hop it. <laughs> and he threw a seed right down the middle. The greatest sports moment, non-sports moment, I would say for me that that would have been like, wow. You're right. He, he is definitely on our list of people we would love to have as a guest on our show just to talk baseball because he's a mm-hmm. ba- baseball guy. As you said, that moment there is off the charts because I don't I don't think anybody wanted him to do that. There was a lot of danger, obviously, in him doing that. But, you know, putting him out there in front of all those fans. But uh, what a moment it was. So, uh, yeah, you, you've got see you've thought about this more often than I have. You got you got some good moments here, and you got some good whoa, folks whoa, here, uh, Mount Rushmore. You are you're hosting. I'm just having to be on your show, you know, <laughs> front row. I just happen to be on your show right now, and I'm listening. And but I always like to engage with my my host, who is hosting me, and ask them questions because you're not used to that. That's yeah. the last thing you're like. Well, let me ask you a question. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Go on. You can't ask me a question and put me on the spot. So I think it's good for your listeners and your viewers to see you on the spot right now. Sweat a little bit. There you go. There you go. Well, we got to reverse this. I'll come on your show and I'll I'll ask you the questions next time, uh, uh, you know, that way as a guest. But uh, Cedric, this has been a lot of fun, man. I, you know, we end it with you certainly making me think and hopefully our, our, our watchers, you know, our viewers and our listeners uh, thinking as well who's on their Mount Rushmore, what are those two moments they would love to have been a part of? Those are uh, two great questions and certainly things. It's, it's what makes sports special, right? I, I mean, there's just so many great 
athletes out there, so many great moments out there that, you know, whether you know about it, whether you were there, whether you watched it, it's just sports. I mean, I mean you're, you're so right. I mean, I, I think about Tiger Woods winning his first Masters or being around the first time that, you know, uh, you know, that the Masters is won by a person of color. Yeah. Again, just the, just the doors or being there for Jackie Robinson's first game. Oh yeah. my God, that must just, <laughs> I mean, the, whew, that's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, there's, as you said, there's great athletes, but those that kind of impact that sport or impact life beyond that sport as well. There's so many of them out there as well that you could, you could hold up and, and talk about. So, uh, Great stuff. Great stuff. Hopefully you're talking about this later on, on on your podcast. Again, the Cedric Maxwell podcast. How can people watch that? How can they uh, make sure they're part of that? Well, you just go to uh, YouTube, Cedric Maxwell podcast, and put my name in, type it in, and, you know, subscribe. Like you would normally tell your listeners or your viewers to do, subscribe, and you only make us stronger. But that's how you would uh, find a way to get to me on, on, uh, on my podcast. Social media, how can people follow you there? Uh, it's at the real Cedric Maxwell. All right. Yeah. Cedric, can't thank you enough for joining us here today. Great stuff. And, uh, wish you the best of luck. And hopefully the the Celtics have a great year as well, because as a broadcaster myself, I know I sound better when the teams win. Right. So it makes the job easier and you sound a whole lot better. (laughs) Makes you sound intelligent then like, Oh man, this guy know what he's talking about. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you do. But uh, again, thank you for your time here today. All right. Have a good one. A lot of fun there today with Cedric Maxwell, our guest in episode number 47, and our thanks to Nick Gelso with uh, North Station Media for helping connect us with Cornbread and getting him on here today. Great stories. Love the questions that he turned on me as well. Some questions for you as a listener and a viewer to think about as well. Who's on that Mount Rushmore for you and what are the two sporting events you would have liked to be front row and center of to watch through history when you're alive as well. So some good stuff there today from uh, Cedric Maxwell. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you've been enjoying our show. And if you have, be sure to subscribe. Be sure to like our episodes as well. Another great guest coming next week. Stay tuned. Be sure to subscribe. You don't want to miss what's coming up here. Again, in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.